Well, good morning and welcome back to those returning to Every Woman's Grace from our study last fall, and welcome to those who are joining us for the new year for our study in God's Word. And again, to our Spanish-speaking sisters, hola! (laughs) This morning, we'd like to go back to where we've been in our study so far and remind all of us of what we learned, what seems to be so long ago. It was a long break since last November, and a lot went on on the holidays to crowd out those lessons that we learned from John chapter 1 through 6. Why is it helpful to be reminded? Because we all know how easily we can forget. And why do we forget? Well, I'm very glad you asked, because I found out some interesting facts about our memories. Memory retention refers to the ability to remember information over a period of time. In short, it is the process of retrieving information after it's been encoded and stored. Okay. Occasionally, our retention may decay and our stored memory is lost as time goes on. This event is known as forgetting. (laughs) Researchers measure forgetting and retention in three different ways, recall, recognition, and relearning. So let's embark on recalling and relearning, John John chapter 1 through 6, and in doing so, beat back that retention decay. And God's word tells us how important it is to be reminded of what we know in 2 Peter 1.12. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth that you have been taught. Throughout our review, we will be reminded of the foundation of the first six chapters of John before we dig deeper into John's gospel next week in chapter 7. And we will see what makes John's gospel unique from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We will follow John's two main themes, Jesus' equality with God and the meaning of discipleship. And why is this important to us? John wants us to understand that Jesus Christ is why he that Jesus Christ and why he became flesh and dwelt among men, so that all would believe and be saved. Last fall, we were discipled by Christ as we made our way through those first six chapters of John. What is discipleship and why is that important? Discipleship is a relationship. Time spent with someone older, farther along in their walk with Christ, walking alongside them in our Christian life and patterning our lives after what is seen there. In the book of John, we saw the first call to discipleship in chapter 1, verse 43, when Jesus finds Philip in Galilee and commands him to follow me. And we see the final call in chapter chapter 21, verse 19, when Christ tells Peter to follow me. The command to follow is a call to believe. From the outset of the book to the end, John trumpets the call to follow Jesus Christ in the context of severe persecution for anyone who would dare associate with him. A disciple believes in Jesus Christ, that he is God and he is the word. A disciple loves Jesus Christ by obeying his word and bearing fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in their life. And a disciple evangelizes about who Christ is and what he's done. The ancient understanding of discipleship relationship is about loyalty and an inward commitment in which John is showing through his gospel. So to be a disciple means a personal attachment, a personal allegiance to Jesus Christ. And that is expressed through obedience to his word and will shape the whole life of the disciple. 
This is what John is inviting us to, a personal attachment to Jesus Christ. We began our study in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And when we finished the first six chapters of John's Gospel back in November, we came full circle from that proclamation to Peter's greatest confession of who God is. Turn in your Bibles to John 6 and read along verses 68 and 69. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The Word speaks, gives understanding, and is the source of salvation. You have the words of eternal life. Let's remember some interesting facts about John's gospel. We saw that 92% of John's gospel is not found in the other ones, and it was written 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's purpose in writing the book is to answer the question, who is Christ? That's included in the theme of of this book. So turn in your Bibles now to chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John had an evangelistic purpose, which is is seen in the use of the word believe approximately 100 times in the gospel, twice as many as the other three gospels combined. John wrote this gospel to provide reasons for saving faith for his readers, and as a result, to assure them that they would receive the divine gift of eternal life. John 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In addition to the emphasis of discipleship, John wanted to convince his readers of Jesus' identity as the incarnate God, a man whose divine and human natures were perfectly united into one person as the prophesied Christ, the Messiah, and the Savior of the world. John wants the reader to understand Jesus' equality with God. John organized his gospel around eight signs, apart from the resurrection, which reinforced Jesus' true identity leading to faith. While some called these miracles, John used the term signs or proofs that Jesus is God. And five of those were in the first six chapters. First, turning the water into wine in chapter 2. Then, healing the royal official's son in chapter 4 healing the lame man in chapter 5, and then finally there were two signs in chapter 6, feeding the multitudes and walking on water. And in chapter 6, we also saw the first of seven I am statements when Christ proclaims, I am the bread of life, emphasizing John's theme of the book, Jesus as Messiah and Son of God who came to earth to save mankind from sin. Why do we study the book of John on its own and not include the other Gospels? We have often, and I'm sure will continue in the lessons to come, to refer to those Gospels as we make our way through the rest of the book. But when you come across someone who is curious about God and Christianity, or perhaps wants to start to read the Bible but doesn't know where to go, we typically send them to the book of John. I'm sure we have many here today who read this book and in the process 
the Holy Spirit lifted the veil from your eyes as you encountered Christ and you were saved. The Gospel of Matthew emphasizes Christ as king. Mark shows us Christ as a suffering servant. Luke points to the humanity of Christ, our representative who could and would die for our sin. John portrays Christ's divine nature, shows that Christ is king and servant, man and God, and the greatness of Jesus. This makes John, the book of John unique as we understand the greatness of our Savior, that he is God. The more we study, the more our love for Christ becomes deeper and broader. And the more we study, the bigger he gets. This impacts the way we live, our thoughts, our motives, and our worship. As we began our study, we saw John the Baptist's proclamation that he was sent from God to proclaim who Jesus is so that all would believe. His ministry was prophesied in Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John the Baptist made this proclamation to the crowds of followers who stayed with Jesus out of curiosity because they liked the physical healing and the feeding, but their hearts were not committed to God. There was no love for him. And by the time we reach the end of chapter 6, only 12 disciples remain. John 6.66 says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. We focused on the two themes of John's gospel, Jesus' equality with God the Father, which gives us a view of his divinity, and then Jesus' emphasis on discipleship, which gives us the view of his humanity. Keeping that in mind, let's take a quick trip, short trip, back through these first six chapters and remember a few of the particular incidents in each chapter that highlight these themes and then what that means for us today. Turn back to the first chapter in John. <clears throat> we saw the word incarnate <clears throat> or embodied in flesh in human form in verse 14 of chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This amazing truth is what we just celebrated with Christmas. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Remember our theme to see Jesus as God? This is the other side of that, and we see Jesus as man. If you were able to attend our church's Christmas concert last month, you heard a beautiful hymn called God with God. This song proclaimed the truth that Christ went from God with God to God with man. Man was able to see God and behold his glory. God as Christ was voluntarily living among his people. And what was the result for us that Christ came in the flesh? John the Baptist proclaims that result in verse 16 and 17 of chapter 1. We have all received grace upon grace. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And by that grace and truth, we have adoption into God's kingdom. We are chosen to bring God's glory. God glory. We have the gift of redemption and forgiveness of sin by his blood, with his grace, which is given in abundance in all wisdom and understanding. John the Baptist proclaimed Christ as Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God. The one he had spoken of was here. 
The Jewish culture was very familiar with the symbolism of lambs, with their sacrificial system. From Isaiah 53, 7, John the Baptist understood why Christ came as a lamb to take away the sin of the world. He understood the prophecy that Christ would be like a lamb led to slaughter. John's confidence was that that this is the Son of God. He had seen the Trinity present at Christ's baptism and had testified that it was true. He understood that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God. In chapter 1, Jesus calls the disciples and draws them to himself. For those who were truly searching and waiting for the prophecy of the coming Messiah to be fulfilled, the word was quickly spreading that Christ was here. The Messiah had come. Andrew and Peter, along with Philip and Nathaniel, who were called in chapter 1, knew the Old Testament, and they were looking for their Messiah. In the process of Jesus calling his disciples, we saw evangelism. We saw Andrew go to Peter and say, come and see. And we saw discipleship when Christ tells those men to follow me. John the Baptist's disciples began to follow Christ because of what John had testified about the Messiah. He pointed them to fulfilled prophecy, and he made much of the glory of Christ. How do we portray Christ to others and with our lives? Do they see him in us? Do we proclaim who he is and what he has done to save us? Do we make much of the glory of Christ? As chapter 2 opens, those Christ has, has chosen and called are now following him, and they are all on their way to a wedding, the first sign or miracle of Christ's earthly ministry. And we saw the earthly relationship with Mary change from mother and son to disciple and Lord. Through this miracle, turning water into wine, Christ was pointing to the heavenly bridegroom who is abundant in the provision of grace. The jars were used for religious cleansing, illustrating man's effort to wash away his sin. The wine he created pointed to the blood of the new covenant that truly washes and cleanses the heart fully. Christ showed his disciples his power. He wanted to strengthen their belief and show his glory. Then we saw Christ in the temple at Passover. Last month, during the height of Christmas music in my home, I heard a line from a song about the birth of Christ that I'd never heard before. It was something about how Christ came as a baby king so that we wouldn't be afraid of him. Since I was in the middle of preparation for today, my mind immediately went to this scene in chapter 2, when Christ, in his righteous anger, cleared out the merchants from the temple who were using it for their own gain and not for its purpose. I don't think he thought about whether or not these men were afraid of him. Christ had the power to judge, and nothing could stop him from doing that, from cleaning out the temple of those who were not there for worship. He was passionate for God's glory, and he had authority over the temple. God's house must be kept pure for worship. The Jewish leaders had no capacity for worship. They only saw the temple as a place for their own gain. Theirs was a religion, not a relationship with God. Jesus then prophesied his death and resurrection when the Jews asked for a sign. And the comment John the author makes after the temple was cleared and this proclamation of Christ was that later 
the disciples remembered these things. They are learning who Christ is and how he fulfills scripture. We saw the difference in the belief of the chosen disciples versus the the belief of the crowds. Those whom Jesus called believed his words, that he was the Messiah, the fulfillment of prophecy, and they were committed to serve him. The crowds gave intellectual assent, but there was no heart commitment. They were wowed by the signs that Jesus performed and saw how they might benefit if they hung around Christ. Just as Jesus knew the hearts of Simon, Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel, and the rest of his chosen disciples, he knew the hearts of these people. He knew they were not committed to him and that their faith was superficial. In the same way, God knows our hearts, our motives. He knows whether those motives for serving him are pure or self-serving. In chapter 3, we met Nicodemus a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews who comes to Christ under the cover of darkness. Do we see ourselves in Nicodemus? He had a lot of knowledge, had reached great status in the Jewish culture, and had come to see how he could add to what he already knew and had. But Christ knew his heart and his need for salvation and regeneration, which could only happen through the work of the Holy Spirit. No amount of work or knowledge on Nicodemus's part could take the place of this work of the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus, while supposedly a religious leader, was spiritually dead with no understanding of spiritual things. He had seen Jesus' works and heard his words, and yet he still failed to believe that Jesus was the Messiah sent from God. Today, Do we believe and try to attain the holiness required of us on our own, by our own works, with just a little bit of Jesus thrown in? The new birth Jesus offered to Nicodemus was a cleansing by the Spirit, which God would use to replace a heart of stone with a new heart and give the Holy Spirit so that we could obey. Our salvation and cleansing is because of God's mercy alone. It has nothing to do with us. We cannot add to it. Ephesians 2 tells us without Christ, we are dead with no ability to save ourselves. But then we come to verse 4, two of the most beautiful and powerful words in Scripture, but God. And the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in us after salvation is obvious, undeniable, and unmistakable. To see the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in someone's life is truly a miracle. It cannot be manufactured. In his conversation with Nicodemus, Christ once again points to the reason he came to earth, his death and resurrection to save us from our sins. He goes back to Numbers 21 when Moses was told to lift the serpent up and those who looked on the serpent would be healed. This prophesied and illustrated the truth that Jesus' death on the cross would bear the burden of our unforgiven sin so that all who believe would have eternal life. This was the necessary price to be paid for our sin. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says, While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ is eternal life. 
In verse 16, Christ once again lays out the gospel message, why he came for Nicodemus in a verse that we all know and love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There is no qualifier in Jesus' message. It was for whoever. We believe in him because of his work on the cross. Christ's discourse with Nicodemus ends with the difference between those who believe and will have eternal life and those who do not and will face judgment, condemned because they love the darkness rather than the light. Christ came that we might have eternal life. John the Baptist understood that as he tells those who question him at the end of chapter 3 that he must increase and I must decrease. He understood that he was sent by God to proclaim the coming of Messiah, and now that he was here, John rejoiced and supported his ministry. We can learn a lot from John the Baptist. To be a faithful disciple, we must have a proper view of Christ. It was time for John and his disciples to shift their focus to Christ as the old covenant was fading and the new covenant was on the horizon. To be a faithful disciple like John, we must follow his example of humility and have a proper view of ourselves. Our ministry comes from God, and we must look to give all glory to him, not ourselves. We best understand who we are when we understand who God is and that we were created to have fellowship with him. Chapter 4 shows us more of Christ as he continued to disciple us regarding living water, true worship, spiritual food, heavenly harvest, and the story of a dying son and the saving faith of his father. As the chapter opens, Jesus is drawing more and more attention from the Pharisees as his popularity grew. For this reason, Jesus and his disciples leave Judea for Galilee through Samaria. Although the shortest route to Galilee was through Samaria, most Jewish people would skirt around rather than walk through Samaria because the Samaritans were a hated people by the Jews. But God's word tells us that Jesus was compelled to go this way. He had lessons to teach us, to teach his disciples, and a people to reach, starting with the woman at the well. We saw that his love for the lost crossed all lines. There is no partiality with the gospel. We just talked about the beauty of the gospel in chapter 3, verse 16. There is no qualifier for those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The invitation is open to whoever believes. How many times do we treat those around us who need the gospel like the Jews treated the Samaritans, doing everything we can to stay away from them, and in doing so, not sharing the truth, what they need the most, the gospel? Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. In this scenario, we see the theme of John's gospel play out, the humanness of Christ, and at the same time, we see his deity. Jesus is God. He was tired and thirsty, just like us, after a long walk, and could have created a cup and water in an instant. But he never used his power to benefit himself. And this is a pattern for us to, to follow as well. We want to be sure that our ministry and work for the Lord comes from a pure heart, not a heart that seeks satisfaction in serving and the praises that come with it. 
Our satisfaction is found only in Christ and in bringing him glory through our service, if that's his will. Jesus showed the woman her need for spiritual water. At first, she only saw the temporal value of a never-ending supply of water, never having to come back to the well. However, Christ lovingly showed her her need for spiritual cleansing by showing her her sin. Her heart would be changed from stone to flesh, and the Holy Spirit would dwell in her, allowing her to be obedient to God and break the cycle of sin that she had lived in for so long. We don't see our need for a Savior until we have a proper view of our sin and how it offends a holy God. Psalm 32, 5 says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. But this would all begin with repentance, turning away from her sin, believing in Christ, and following him. Isaiah 55, 6 through 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he may be near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Salvation is always available to those who seek God and repent from their sin. Have you obeyed this command found in Mark 1.15? Repent and believe in the gospel. Those who believe they are a good person and that God should allow them to spend eternity with him because of their good works are guilty if they do not obey this one command, repent and believe in the gospel. It doesn't matter what good things we do with our life, how we love and serve those around us, if we have not repented and turned away from our sin and believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Acts 3.19 says, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. And so we saw that Christ was patient with this woman and showed her compassion and gave her hope. It didn't matter where she was from, what she looked like, or what she had done in her past. In verse 26, we saw Christ declare his deity for the very first time, revealing that he is the Messiah. He could have done this to more politically correct, influential targets like the Jewish leaders. But instead, he chose to reveal himself for the first time to an obscure, despised, immoral Samaritan woman. God does not show partiality when it comes to the sweeping truth of the gospel. Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. By the end of this scenario, we see the whole city believe in Christ. There were no miracles, no signs to prove Jesus was the Messiah sent from God. Instead, it was the power of his words. True belief trusts in the words of God, and faith and trust, faith grows as trust grows. Signs and miracles do not save. There must be repentance and belief. In chapter 5, we turned a corner. The nation of Israel turns from an attitude of curiosity as they begin to perceive Jesus' social welfare program as something they wanted a Messiah for. But now their attitude turns one to, out, to one of outright rejection in these next two chapters. This turn begins in the first scene of chapter 5, the healing of the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda, triggering hostility because this was done on the Sabbath. 
We can go back to chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple to see when this antagonism began. And we have watched it grow when we see Christ leave Judea for Galilee in chapter 4 as his ministry gained popularity and got the attention of the Jewish leaders. Our pastor says, His rejection of self-righteous Jews and his violation of the Jewish traditional regulations concerning the Sabbath fan the flames of resentment and open opposition. While the Sabbath had been established as a day of rest, the Jewish leaders had added all sorts of extra requirements that were never intended to be there. Jesus had broken man's Sabbath when he healed the man by the pool, but he had not broken God's Sabbath. In chapter 4, we saw the beautiful picture of a patient and compassionate Christ revealing himself as God, as the Messiah, to a Gentile woman who was steeped in sin. He changed her heart, and in the process, an entire city was evangelized and saved. Here in chapter 5, we saw Christ again revealing himself as God to those Jewish leaders, his own people, and instead facing rejection and open hostility. Verse 18 tells us why the Jews wanted to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Again, we see John's theme. Jesus is equal with God. He does the work the Father sent him to do. The work is the same because Jesus shares God's identity. All of God's attributes are applied to Christ. He has the power to raise the dead to life, as the Father does, and will judge the world with power to send those who believe to eternal life and those who reject the gospel to eternal hell. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Finally, in chapter 5, we saw Jesus' equality with God testified. Though we saw John the Baptist declare that Jesus is the Son of God, there is an even greater testimony from God in verse 36. But the testimony I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He shows his unity with the Father. If you believe in the Father, you believe in the Son. And if you reject Christ you reject God. By the end of chapter 5, there is no question. Jesus is God. What will you do with that truth? Will you listen to the words uh, words of Christ and the truth of the gospel in verse 25? Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Or are you like the Jewish leaders? who in their pride would not acknowledge Christ as Messiah. They prided themselves in knowing the scriptures, the Old Testament, the writings of Moses, who they claimed to trust and believe. They had all the knowledge, but without a love for God. They could not and would not believe in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. As chapter 6 opens, the crowds were relentless because as we see in verse 2, they saw signs which he performed on those who were diseased. This makes us pause for just a moment and ask ourselves a question. Why do I follow Christ? Is it to get things from him, to to have my way? Or do I seek his will when I pray? 
desire to see him glorified rather than my wants and needs satisfied. Along with the disciples, chapter 6 was a lesson in discipleship for all of us. When faced with the prospect of feeding the massive crowd gathered to see what Christ would do and say next, the disciples' faith faltered. The feeding of the 5,000, which some estimate to be more like 20 to 25,000 with the women and children, is the only miracle recorded by each of the four Gospels, which makes us sit up and take notice of the obvious significance of this miracle. We just saw in chapter 5 that Jesus' deity was defended and testified to, proving that he is God. And here we see one of the greatest testimonies of his power over creation and his compassion for the people for both their physical and spiritual needs. And he graciously used this to continue to train his disciples and disciple them in their faith and trust as that would grow. Philip and Andrew are singled out in this narrative. Philip showed his faith was not strong enough to believe that Christ could do such a thing when presented with such a meager offering of food. Andrew did not trust in his power to provide for the people. And a patient, compassionate Christ met them where they were and taught them to grow. Faith and obedience always go hand in hand, and God faithfully grows us through our obedience. How are we trained or discipled today? God has given us his word, the scriptures, to teach us. He allows us to have trials which make us dependent on him, forces us to trust him, which in turn causes our faith to grow. And through it all, we see Christ's care for us. We see he is compassionate, gracious, long-suffering, righteous, and abundant in mercy and truth. We watch these men's faith and trust grow throughout Jesus' ministry on earth, and the result was their powerful work in Acts after Christ's ascension and as the church was born. God's kingdom would start out small, but would grow enormously, and we see how through the discipleship of Christ, both for his disciples and for us. We had a lot of fun with this lesson in my group, trying to imagine how Jesus created so much food from so little. Did loaves of bread just pop up all over the place? Did the disciples keep coming back for more and Jesus just kept handing them loaves of bread? And can you imagine what perfect bread tastes like? Back in 2020, I was one of those that joined the sourdough train. There is nothing like a warm, fresh loaf of bread with the right amount of holes and crumb. And few can turn down a slice when toasted and buttered. But imagine this bread was perfect, created by God right then and there. The crowd was truly given a slice of heaven. Here in chapter 6, as we mentioned before, we saw the first of seven I am statements in the book of John when God proclaims, that, when Christ proclaims that he is the bread of life. We see the crowds are only interested in the physical bread Christ gives them, but his desire is to feed them the bread of life, that they grow in knowledge and understanding. Do we crave Christ in his word in the same way that we crave bread or water when thirsty? Jesus came to be life, not just provide bread. If Christ is not what we crave, we must ask ourselves if perhaps we are chasing after other things than Christ. Pray for faith from him and the desire for him, both prayers that God loves to answer. The work of faith is the work of God. 
This miracle caused the people to tie Jesus to Moses' messianic prophecy in Deuteronomy 18, where Moses told of a prophet who would come into the world. No doubt the people were also reminded of Moses and the miraculous manna that God provided for Israel in the wilderness. Once the people's sicknesses were healed and their stomachs were full, their response showed what they were really looking for in a Messiah. They wanted an earthly deliverer, one who would meet their physical needs, and food and health were at the top of their list, as well as freeing them from the oppressive yoke of the Romans. Christ knows the hearts of men, understands that they believed him to be that prophet, and were about to come and seize him and make him king. For this reason, he removes himself to the mountain. And so, after the people are fed and the 12 extra baskets of leftovers are picked up, Jesus sends his disciples on their way in a boat across the sea to Capernaum, and he goes to the mountain by himself. Why didn't Christ go with them? We see his need for time with his father. Mark, Matthew 14 and Mark 6 tell us he wanted to spend time in prayer alone. Does it surprise you that Jesus Christ, whom we have repeatedly seen in these first chapters of John, is God, needed time to pray? Throughout his ministry on earth, we see Jesus taking time to get away from everything and everyone to pray, spend time with his father. How much more do we need to make prayer a priority? If Jesus Christ, who is fully God, needed it, we certainly do. How often does our pride get in the way and keep us from taking time to be still before God? As Jesus prayed and the disciples left in their boat, a storm kicks up on the Sea of Galilee. Now these are experienced fishermen, men whose livelihood is made on a boat, no matter what kind of weather. But this storm was more than even they could handle. And here we see another opportunity for Christ to disciple his chosen men, as well as us, and show his power over his creation. He sets out to meet the men by walking on the water, and they were terrified. Not only was the storm not allowing them to make progress, but here comes something moving across the water in the midst of the wind and the driving rain. But Jesus spoke to them, told them not to be afraid, got in the boat, and almost as amazing as walking on the water or feeding the 20,000 people, the boat was immediately at their destination, and the storm stopped. Wow. There was a cross-reference in my Bible from these verses that caught my attention. Psalm 107, 28 to 30 says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Do you think the disciples were starting to see the power that Jesus had? What a time that stretched and grew their faith and their trust in this man who was God, sent from God, that all might believe in his name and by believing have eternal life. The crowds are back, wanting to see what Christ will do next. Although they have experienced the power of God, they only see Christ as being a benefit to them by feeding and healing. Their hearts do not believe in God and do not believe that Jesus was their Messiah. They only wanted the perks of being near him, curious about what he would do next. And Jesus, in his compassion and mercy, points this out to them. They do not seek God and do not have the spiritual discernment to recognize Christ as God. 
Spurgeon addressed this when he said, Always recollect, dear friends, that the best spiritual food in the world is useless to those who are spiritually dead. All attempts at feeding the soul are of no use until the new birth has been experienced. Even that precious, priceless bread of life cannot be assimilated unless the soul has been quickened by the Spirit of God. As we moved through chapter 6, we saw that people only wanted their temporary physical needs met. In other words, free food. But Jesus wanted to meet their spiritual needs, offering food that endures to everlasting life. The crowds asked for another sign that Jesus is truly God, but another miracle or sign would not have changed their hearts. Only the Holy Spirit can bring about that change. But these people lacked the faith to believe that Jesus was the living bread, able to fulfill their spiritual need so that they would never hunger and thirst again. This helps us understand where false religions are, why they're so predominant, and they pull so many people in, although they do not teach the truth. They promise to give people what they want rather than what they need. Anne Bradley shared a great quote from John Piper when she spoke on this passage. They wanted bread as their pleasure, but not Christ as their treasure. How do we feed on the bread of life? As a believer, it starts with a longing for God's word. There is an eagerness for his presence, and his word brings rejoicing, joy to the heart, and comfort to our souls in time of distress and need. The people's true heart started to show when Jesus explained he is the bread of life, sent by the Father to do his will. And his will is to draw all those the Father has chosen. All those who look on Christ and believe will be kept by him and raised on the last day. This truth of the gospel, that life comes from Christ who was sent by God, is the source of eternal life. Jesus prophesied his coming death and resurrection, and therefore salvation for those who abide in him. God's elect will be held secure in Christ. Not all are drawn to him, but those who are will believe because of the gift of faith which comes from the Father. We can only enter his kingdom because of Christ, and we can only remain in the kingdom of God because of Christ. By the end of chapter 6, we see the people's response is to grumble. This is not what they signed up for, and they are not interested in the, internal, the eternal life Christ was so graciously offering them. Their hearts do not love God. They are not committed to him, and so they leave and no longer follow Christ. Many will follow Jesus for what they want from him, but few are those that are drawn by God himself. Jesus then turns to his chosen disciples and asks if they too would like to leave. And we get to see a beautiful testimony that we read earlier from Peter, who, although he has a lot more to learn, which we'll see throughout the rest of our study, proves the discipleship of Christ in his life. In verses 68 and 69, let's read it again. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. And so in these first six chapters of John, we have come full circle. Chapter one proclaimed that Jesus is the word since the beginning. And here we see Peter proclaiming that Jesus' words are the source of eternal life because he truly is the Holy One of God. Those following Christ for the wrong reasons are gone now. 
and he is left with his chosen 12 to teach and disciple as the hostility of the Jewish leadership will continue to grow as they seek to kill him. How God's character was shown in these first six chapters. We saw the power of his word. We saw that he's accessible, glorious, loving, wrathful, righteous, and powerful, compassionate, and full of mercy and truth. We will continue to see opposition to the Son of God prophesied in chapter 1, verse 11. We will see the preparation of the disciples as Jesus looked to his impending death on the cross in both the upper room and Gethsemane. We will see Christ's rejection, crucifixion, and death, the resurrection of the Son of God, and the appearances of the risen Christ. We've been through quite a journey as we reviewed where we've been with a little hint of where we're going in the study of the book of John. We followed John's themes and saw clearly throughout the deity of Christ in his equality with God, and we saw his humanness with the emphasis on discipleship. We saw and will continue to see why this is important to us as believers. John will show us who Jesus Christ is and why he became flesh and dwelt among men so that all would believe in him and be saved. For those of us who are returning after an extended break from the holidays, I hope this was a fruitful time to be reminded of where we've been before we jump back into chapter 7 next week. And for those of you that are just joining us today, you are ready. You've seen where we've been, and I hope you are encouraged by where we are going as we learn more about our Savior from this study. And as a result, love him more deeply, and are more committed to serving him with our lives. The discipleship of Christ in our lives is a lifelong endeavor. What a joy to learn and grow from the living word. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you impress these truths on our hearts, and may the Holy Spirit quicken our hearts to believe and obey as our faith and trust in you grows. Go with us now and bless our time with our groups, and may you be glorified in all that we say and do. In your son's name we pray, amen.